This program is made possible by the financial support of listeners just like you. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Daily Show, The Young Turks, The Breakdown, The Onion Radio News, Mumia Abu-Jamal, The Progressive, Jim Hightower, and The Tom Hartman Program with a bonus clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Progressive. Financial crisis. That's right, we're still talking about it. (laughs) Our economy has been guided by the Federal Reserve Bank, which is now engaged in a trillion-plus-dollar program to prop up the economy called quantitative easing. (laughs) It's not a made-up phrase, if that's what you're thinking. It's when the Fed buys up government debt with money that they make out of thin air. (laughs) Sounds like they're printing money. Nuh-uh. One myth that's out there is that what we're doing is printing money. We're not printing money. See? That's Ben Bernanke, the chairman of the Fed. We're not printing money, we're imagineering money. (laughs) Printing money would be like last year when we were making things quantitatively easier for banks by buying up massive amounts of their debt using money created from thin air. That was printing money. Don't take my word for it. Take the guy with the exact same beard on the exact same show, talking to the exact same interviewer, not 21 months ago. To lend to a bank, we simply use the computer to mark up the uh, size of the account that they have with the Fed. So it's much more akin, uh, although not exactly the same, but it's much more akin to printing money than it is to borrowing. You've been printing money. Well, effectively, and we need to do that. I guess Bernanke was looking at the average age of a 60 Minutes viewer and betting anyone who saw him last year is dead now. (laughs) Just admit it, Bernanke, you're a guy with a beard who's allowed to print money. Which makes you look smarter and more powerful than people who can't print money and don't have beards. (laughs) Frankly, I tried growing a beard. Uh, My power, if anything, diminished. (laughs) It's the ability to print money, that's the thing. So go ahead then, print money. Aside from Zimbabwe-like hyperinflation, what could go wrong? A printing problem has forced the government to put more than one billion brand new $100 bills into storage. Production has been halted until a fix is figured out. Are you me? (laughs) Now we can't even print money? That was the last thing we were good at. What happened? Apparently the printing process, which incorporates high-tech features like 3D security strips, color shifting images, is so complex that it's causing bills to crease and fold during production. Oh my God. (laughs) We've outsmarted ourselves with our own fancy security measures to the point where our money is committing suicide on the press. (laughs) I hope we still remember our passwords. Or at least the answers to the security question prompts. Ooh, what's our country's maiden name? Mm, Great Britain, I believe. (laughs) So apparently the only way to fix the economy is to print money, but we can't print money. The only way this story could get worse is if it's somehow also added to global warming. 
It will take more than a year to sift through those piles of cash and find the bad bills, which will be taken out and burned. <laughs> in outdoor fires in front of homeless people. Dylan, uh, I'm here to tell you, unfortunately, I told you so. Now, I said that the Republicans were going to come after Social Security. I told you the whole government was going to come after your Social Security, and they have begun. Senator Richard Shelby from Alabama, a Republican, saying, well, what are we going to do? I think the correct solution is to, quote, up the age every several years for your retirement. So they'll start at 65, go to 67, maybe they'll go to 69, every couple of years they'll raise it again, maybe they'll go to 71. Do I have any takers? Can I go to 73? Can I go to 79? Can I go to 89? How long can they do this? Well, he says, look, anybody that can do sixth grade math knows that Social Security is in massive trouble. That is 100% not true. And I'm going to do the sixth grade math for him in a second. But he also said about his sons, like, as if he cares deeply, right? And so he says, quote, uh, they're not going to receive anything, or if they do, very little. There's no proof that they will get much, if anything. Once again, totally, completely, utterly untrue. Now, let me tell you the reality. Social Security has a surplus of $2.5 trillion. $2.5 trillion surplus. That surplus is going to go all the way up to $4.2 trillion. They say, oh, no, but, you know, it's just a bunch of IOUs, and we're not going to be able to pay it because we already spent the money on the wars and on tax cuts for the rich. Well, look, that is a full faith and credit of the United States of America. You're going to pay China, you're going to pay Saudi Arabia, but you're not going to pay the people who put into Social Security all that time? Hell no. Hell no. we got to fight this tooth and nail. And then uh, he comes around and says, oh, well, look, what could we do? We've got a deficit problem. No, Social Security has nothing to do with the deficit. It gets paid by the payroll tax. You've been paying your whole life. It gets put aside. It has nothing to do with the deficit. They're lying to you. They're coming for your retirement money. I'm not kidding. He said, it. look, I don't have to tell you. You just saw the quote, right? So I, I, you can't stand for this. Now, here's the really interesting part. They say it as if, like, oh, it's no big deal. You're just going to work an extra couple of years, right? But that's literally taking money out of your pocket. If you retire at 70 instead of at 65 like they want you to, you know how much it costs you? $63,573. They're going to take that out of your pocket and they treat it it's like, like it's no big deal? Oh, here's my answer to them. Hell no. Hell no. They don't get to touch Social Security. We paid into that the whole time. I'm going to leave it right there oh, for now. Well, I mean, but, the, but how do we connect the dots? Because we have these idiots on the right. And I want to say something else. If you say, oh, well, this is uncivil, this is civility. No, no, no. This is not uncivil, okay? Our, our problem in this country is not lack of civility. 
Our problem in this country is a lack of the courage to actually address the actual problems that we have with a corrupt banking system, corrupt tax, corrupt tax code, corrupt health care system, and a corrupt trade relationship that has created the deficits. And then they come out, as the Republicans did today, going after food for poor people and Social Security. And the only barrier that I see to being able to prevent any of this is the American people's ability to connect the dots between the borrowed money for tax cuts for the rich and the middle class so that Obama and the Republicans could keep their jobs, well, the subsidies for the banks so that Obama and the politicians could keep their jobs, the special deals with the health insurance companies and the drug companies so that Obama and the Republicans could keep their jobs, or the ongoing refusal, as they just did last week, to call China a currency manipulator and deal with the corrupt trade as the Treasury Department, Obama's Treasury Secretary, just did in the past few days so that Obama and the Republicans can keep their jobs. And they're not worried about the people of America at all. Obama, the Republicans, Republicans and the Democrats are simply worried about alienating those who write checks to keep them in the jobs and they have confidence that the spin doctors and advertising and marketing people they pay with those corporate dollars can convince the stupid Americans that it was somebody else's fault. Well, let me connect the dots for you, right? They cut $800 billion in taxes. Half of those go to the top uh, 2%, right? Yes. So then they say, oh, well, we're out of money. We're it. out of money. How do we connect so the dots? you know what they do? They got to get the money somewhere. Yes. Where do they get the money? They get it from the middle class. They already paid it into Social Security. Yeah. So they go to rob the middle class to pay the rich. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Well, this week, the president announced his new budget for the next fiscal year, and there's a lot of discussion in the press about the deficit. There will be a projected deficit in this year's budget and projected deficits out through the rest of the decade, according to the president's budget documents. This is prompted a great deal of wailing and gnashing of teeth amongst the Beltway commentators. And Amidst this wailing and gnashing of teeth comes a question from Twitter user Thinking underscore Reed, who is a friend of the show and also has a great blog called thinkingreadwordpress.com. And he just asks the simple question, why are deficits bad, parentheses, if indeed they are? And to answer that question, I have Dr. Robert Poland, who is a professor of economics and co-director of the Political Economy Research Institute at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He has a great essay in the Boston Review out right now about how we can try to get to full employment without spending a single cent more. And he recently wrote a piece for Challenge magazine titled Austerity is Not a Solution, Why the Deficit Hawks Are Wrong. Bob, thanks so much for coming on The Breakdown. It's my pleasure, Chris. All right, so maybe let's start out with just like super basics, which is I think it's important to distinguish what is a deficit, what causes a deficit, and what is the difference between the deficit and the debt. 
Okay, well, the deficit is measured. We're talking about the federal government's mm -hmm. deficit. That's when we spend more money than we take in in tax revenue. So the deficit is just the difference where you have to cover your additional spending by borrowing money as opposed to using tax revenue. So the deficit is a one-year thing, right? The deficit that you have is over, say, a one-year budget period. So you say, you know, this year we're going to take in $2.5 trillion in revenue and we're going to spend $3.5 trillion in expenses. And so there's going to be a $1 trillion gap. The $1 trillion is the deficit. And to cover that, we're going to borrow money. And the way we borrow money is by issuing treasury bonds. Is that correct? Exactly right. All right. So what's the difference between that and the debt? The debt is the accumulation of deficits. So if this year, as take your example, we have a $1 trillion deficit and next year we have a $1 trillion deficit and the year after we have a $1 trillion deficit, if we didn't pay any of those one-year deficits down in year three, we would have a $3 trillion debt. Right. So we've accumulated every year that we have deficit spending, we add to the debt and that debt accumulates over time if we don't run surpluses and pay it off. And right now our debt is, what is it in the $13 trillion, $14 trillion, somewhere around there? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Give or take a trillion. <laughs> Yeah, what's the difference? <laughs> so then I think the next question is, are budget deficits in the history of the United States government the norm or an anomaly? Absolutely the norm. Certainly from World War II, a Great Depression onward, almost every year the U.S. has run a deficit. There have been some exceptions, but for the most part, we've run deficits every year. Okay, so that I think, now we're, we're getting into the heart of the matter here, which is when someone hears that, you say, okay, well, you know, there's a certain logic about balancing your own family's checkbook, and, you know, I guess if I spent more every single year than I took in an in income, I would end up at some point in a bad situation. And particularly in the wake of the bursting of the credit bubble and a lot of people obviously being over-leveraged, excessively indebted, I think people look at the U.S. debt that is created by deficits over time and think, well, no good can come of this. So what are the bad things that excessive government debt can produce? Why would we be worried about too much debt? Well, the main bad thing is that what you just said, that we would accumulate interest payments in addition to principal repayments that would be so large that they would consume tax revenues and there wouldn't be enough money left over to pay for any of the good things like education, social spending spending on the environment. That's really the, as far as I'm concerned, that would be the primary problem that we'd have to be concerned with. So the debt gets too big and like a credit card bill that starts to swallow up all of your income, then all of a sudden we're paying too much money to service that debt, to pay the interest down on that debt. Yeah, I mean, and, and that is a legitimate concern. But as I'm sure you're going to ask me, uh, that's hardly the full story. Well, let's let's talk about where we are now in terms of what it's costing us to service our debt and whether that's too much. Well, see, the problem is right now, what freaked everybody out is, of course, the deficits are historically large at around 10% of GDP. So if GDP is around $14 trillion, the deficit is about $1.4 trillion. And on average, over, say, since 1950 on, the deficit has been about 2% of GDP. So this is historically large. 
but the problem is that it was the Great Recession, the Wall Street crash, the hyperspeculation on Wall Street that was itself of such gigantic magnitude that it elicited a deficit of this size. And the deficits have been a very positive force, in my view, in at least setting a floor under the economy so that we wouldn't collapse into another Great Depression. So that's the major positive because the deficit also means, of course, more spending. And the government spending has been a very positive, powerful force. Maybe it has not been fully adequate, certainly not fully adequate, but a powerful positive force in fighting against the Wall Street-induced collapse and recession. So on the plus side for the deficits, and I, you know, you and I agree, and I think probably a lot of listeners do, is you know, when no one else has money, when no one else is spending, when, when private business isn't lending, when consumers are deleveraging, means they're taking less and less debt, you have a constriction of demand that exacerbates the problems in the economy. It causes joblessness and recession stagnation. The government, you know, in classic Keynesian sense, can come into that vacuum. It can borrow money. It can borrow money quite cheaply. It can inject that money into the economy and kind of boost demand and help lighten the burden of the recession. So that's on the yeah on the, and yeah yeah Please. and then on your point the borrowing rates and this is unique relative to other periods when we've had big deficits. The last time we had deficits anywhere close to this were under the ultra-conservative hero Ronald Reagan, of all people. The deficits were about 6% of GDP at the peak, whereas now it's about 10 But in any case, under Reagan, when the government was borrowing, the interest rate that we were paying was 13% on treasuries. Now we're paying 2%. So in terms of borrowing costs, we are getting a fantastic deal. The U.S. government and we, the taxpayers, given that we have to borrow, it just happens to be that we're getting the credit at almost zero interest rates. So that the debt burden, which is actually the interest that we have to pay, is way below what it would have been, say, under the Reagan deficit. So we're paying less on our, say, credit card statement or on our mortgage, as it were, as a monthly payment to sort of keep using this analogy than we were during the Reagan years because the interest rate is so much lower. Yeah. I mean, imagine if you got your credit card debt at 2% as opposed to 13%. Right, that's right. the difference that we're looking at. I want to raise the specter of a few other reasons. So you say, you know, that's basically the thing to focus on. What is the cost of servicing the debt and how much is that eating up the revenue we have? Mm -hmm. There are some other things that people say are is bad about debt. One is that it puts us in hock to foreigners, particularly the scary Chinese. What do you think of that? I, I don't make anything of that at all, because the main thing that the Chinese would want is to get paid back. And that means they also have a stake in the U.S. economy performing reasonably well, so they will get paid back. So I don't really see them as having any kind of political leverage on us, given the deficit. You know, there's this old line about the bankers. If you owe the bank a $1,000, then they've got you in a vice grip. If you owe the bank a million dollars, then you've got them in a vice grip. And I think that there's a rough analogy there between the U.S. and China. Now, you know, there's a lot of complicated things going on in U.S.-Chinese relationships. And I don't think that the overriding one is the fact that we owe the Chinese money. We owe other countries money. We owe the Japanese a lot of money as well. And moreover, you know, the point about the deficit is that if we get to a recovery, at least half of the level of the deficit is going to get absorbed just by the recovery itself. Okay, so you're not too worried about the Chinese banker scenario. No, what are they going to do? I mean, what can they? What could they possibly do? Say, we want our money, and then you say, fine, you're going to get your money. Just right. be patient. I mean, there is no leverage there. Right. 
So the other thing that people say, I'm just sort of ticking through the like why we should be worried about this. The other thing people say is, well, look what happened to Greece. You hear this all the time. We're going to be Greece. Yeah, that's in the New York Times today. I actually, right before we got on, I read the New York Times story, and that's the quote from the front page story of the Times. We're scared we're going to become Greece. The analogy doesn't apply at all for two reasons. Number one, Greece does not have an independent monetary policy. They don't have their own central bank. They have to rely on the European Central Bank to help them service the debt, whereas we have our own monetary policy. And that means that at least some of the deficit can be covered by the central bank itself, by the Fed buying up some of the debt. Now, that's going to sound really weird and scary and crazy, but in fact, that's what the Fed does every day. That is called monetary policy. Right. So if the Fed just kind of accelerated the rate at which it buys up government bonds, that will help ease whatever problems we have with our deficit. Greece does not have that option. So that really puts the clamps on Greece. And number two is that the Greek government owes money to private banks throughout Europe and elsewhere, and they are not big enough to be in the situation that I just described as we are with China. They are not big enough to say to the banks, yeah, go ahead, we're going to default and screw you. They aren't big enough to do that. They are not too big to fail the way the U.S. is. Exactly. They're not too big to fail. So they uh, maybe they are, but they're not ready to test it. And so that therefore they are faced with a situation in which the banks say, well, squeeze the population, stop spending so much money and save more so that you can pay us back. There are other solutions in Greece. I mean, if the European Central Bank behaved in the way that the U.S. Fed could, I mean, if the European Central Bank said, well, we'll we're going to buy up the toxic assets held by the banks from Greece and other countries, that also would ease the crisis within a matter of days. But they're not doing that because they don't really care that much about Greece. Now, when you talk about the Fed buying up treasuries, another way of, of saying that is expanding the money supply because they pay cash for those treasuries and they pay cash by increasing the amount that's in the account of the bank they purchase it from, right? And so that increases the money supply. So the other, the sort of colloquial way we refer to that is printing money, right? Yep. And I think the third fear that's out there is that we're going to monetize the debt, which means we're going to inflate our way out of it. We're going to print money. And that's the end of Western civilization. There's a Vladimir Lenin line about there's no quicker way to destroy society by debasing the currency or something like that. Right. Right. What, what, do, you, what do you think about that, that scenario? Well, again, the Federal Reserve, actually, I teach a lot of this stuff, and for reasons we don't have to get into, I don't like the terminology about printing money and the money sure. supply. But anyway, I know people know that. That's the common way that people think about it, and we don't have to get into those details. But the point is, the Fed does this every day. This is common, everyday practice that the Fed, to use your term, prints money every day. And the technical way they do it is they buy government bonds. So they're doing it every day. So the question is, if you do it at a somewhat faster rate, is it going to create an uncontrollable inflation? Well, there's no evidence for that. If that were going to happen, it would have happened last year because guess what? There was all this news focused around the Treasury, you know, taking $800 billion to bail out the banks, which is true. But let's triple that number and say that's how much the Fed interjected into the economy to also bail out the financial system. And we have almost no inflation. So the reason you get sustained inflation is not because of Federal Reserve action, but some combination generally of oil prices going up rapidly. And on top of that, having a, an economy which is already at close to full capacity 
And so when you have the oil price shock, that pushes up prices all around the economy. That's the real dynamic forcing strong inflationary pressures, and we're not there. So let me conclude on this with with a kind of devil's advocate question. I mean, we've ticked through a lot of the reasons that people say that we have to be worried about the levels of government debt. And you say these are not good reasons to be worried about them, that interest rates are historically low, so we can well afford to service the debt, that we have our own independent monetary policy, and we have the world's reserve currency, which means that we have a lot more latitude in how to sort of manage that debt. We're not going to have the international creditors come making a run at us. I guess my final question would be like, okay, why not run even bigger deficits? I mean, is there a point at which we should be worried, and how do we know when we're there? Because I tend to agree with you that right now is not, but then you end up sounding like you're saying that basically there's nothing but free lunches, right? (laughs) No, I I like your question, because I've been in debates uh, with a lot of people that I'm very friendly with, and I don't think that there's an indefinite level of government borrowing that is available to us. I am actually worried about the level of the deficit right now. 10% of GDP, $1.4 trillion dollars is large. I mean, if you just go by history, you say, wow, you know, okay, we were there in World War II, but remember, that was World War II, and we're not fighting World War II. So I think it's legitimate to be concerned. I just think that the other factors surrounding the economy right now are far more severe as problems, like having officially 9% unemployment, which is really closer to 20% if measured properly, where we have talk about state and local governments where the governor of Wisconsin is saying he's going to break the unions and call out the National Guard to cut back on government spending where we have stories on the front page of the Times about breaking public sector workers' pension funds. Those are the severe problems of the economy. And at this moment, having a deficit in the range of 10% of GDP is is something to care about, but it is, in my view, easily manageable. So therefore, it's a second-order problem. The Onion Radio News. The U.S. takes out a debt consolidation loan. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Plagued by late fees, high interest rates, and annoying creditors, the U.S. took out a debt consolidation loan today, combining the nation's $6.1 trillion debt into a single easy monthly payment. Easy Debt spokesman Phil Rizzo. When you don't know where else to turn, Easy Debt is there to help you get back on your feet. Opponents of the plan charge that it endangers numerous national assets offered as collateral. Among the valuable properties, Yellowstone National Park, NASA, and the mighty Mississippi River. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News online and the All these buildings and mountains slowly they'll arise before our eyes. How do cities under 
cities for sale. As the Great Recession works its way through states and localities, it is forcing policymakers to make hard decisions. Those decisions will change how lives are lived all across America. Because of lower tax returns caused by high unemployment rates and a long history of tax breaks, states and cities are sharpening their knives to slice up education budgets, social services, and even funds for policing. While Wall Street has been repaired and stocks are selling at record high volumes, the financial picture for most people has been grim. It is grimmer still for those living on the Martin Luther King boulevards across the country. Rolling Stone correspondent Matt Taibbi has just penned a book on the present U.S. economy. In Griftopia, Taibbi argues that the lords of capital own both major political parties. The politicians are little better than hustlers hustling for their own financial benefit. And the U.S. is, despite what politicians tell us, becoming a third world nation where education, real health care, and personal security is the preserve of those rich enough to afford it not the rest of us. One of Taibbi's most remarkable columns is one revealing how city councils, mayors, and governors are selling away bits and pieces of America to the highest bidder. He cites a discussion with a friend of his, a former derivatives trader, newly returned from a lucrative job as a financial advisor in the Middle East. I was in a meeting where a bunch of American investment bankers were trying to sell us the Pennsylvania Turnpike, he said. They even had a slideshow. They were showing these Arabs what a nice highway we had for sale, what the toll booths looked like. I dropped my fork. The Pennsylvania Turnpike is for sale? He nodded. Yeah, he said. We didn't do the deal, though. But, you know, there are some other deals that have gotten done. Or didn't you know about this? Taibi details cities leasing their parking meters for almost the next century at bargain basement prices and planning on selling water treatment systems. In the last decade or so, countries and corporations in Latin America have done similar things to the detriment of their workers and their people. Only broad, deep popular resistance has stymied many of these privatization plans. We're witnessing the selling of the nation from which no good can come. From death row, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. Wall Street Journal is reporting on uh, profits for uh, the top financial corporations. Now, first, let me tell you what our situation is for the average American uh, household. Well, in the previous year, uh, we lost 1.5% of our income. Okay, so we are headed down, right? Meanwhile, of course, the top financial firms are headed way up. They're up 5.7% 5 .5, 5 in 2010. And the 25 companies that have already reported that are financial companies have reported a new record of $135 billion in profits. 
So while the average income is dipping, their income is soaring. Why? Of course, because our government made the decision to basically hand them all that money. And so they can't find a way to lose money in the middle of what is a terrible recession for us and near 10% unemployment. Now let me give you some more of the numbers. When you look at uh, what's been happening with the financial firms, first of all, their revenue rose 1% uh, to $417 billion, and that is also a new all-time record. I thought we were in the middle of a recession, but of course the big banks, they make money no matter what because they're getting the money at nearly 0% interest rate from the government. The Fed took $600 billion of their toxic mortgages, I was going to use more colorful language, that took toxic mortgages off their hands. If you made $600 billion worth of bad bets, and then the government picked up the tab, you'd be doing pretty good too, because you only have the good bets left. And you're making the bets at nearly 0% interest rate. That's why they're kicking ass. Now, uh, the revenue that went to the employees' pockets, by the way, is also up from 31.1% in 09 to 32.5% this year. Now, what does that mean? Why is that relevant? Because they're not giving, they're not even giving all the money in profits to their shareholders. The employees, the executives of the company, are keeping more and more of the money for themselves. And I'll give you a number on that. According to the Wall Street Journal, uh, financial firms' uh, executive compensation also hit an all-time record high again this year. And by the way, you know what the previous record was? Last year. Also in the middle of a terrible recession for the rest of us. Now you see why I don't like Tim Geithner. I think the Obama Treasury Department has been a disaster. And by the way, it's definitely bipartisan. The Bush Treasury Department is the one who started this mess in the first place. The one who gave them all these giveaways after they totally crashed our economy. It's unconscionable. And it, it, look, if the American people knew more about what is hap what's happening and why they're making these profits and how it's actually based off of, you know, taxpayer funds in a lot of ways and money that the Fed is printing on our behalf, it would be ten times more in raise than they are now. And when this thing crashes again, well, then they're going to turn around and they're not going to say, hey, let's take the money back from the bankers. They're going to say, oh, well, what can we do? We ran out of money. We got to take it from the American middle class. They're already beginning to do that. Yesterday we showed you a video of Tim Geithner saying, oh, entitlements, Social Security, Medicare. It's inevitable that we have to come after those. He's got to feed his big banker friends. They're making record profits. How are they going to make a record profit next year if he doesn't take our money this year? Back in Washington, President Obama released his budget for fiscal year 2012, apparently in phone book form. The budget calls for $3.7 trillion in spending, which is, I know, 
a difficult number to wrap your head around. Perhaps this ABC World News demonstration will in no way clarify things for you. We bought $100 worth of pennies and started to stack them. Until we got this, the $3.7 trillion budget. Each one of these stacks of five pennies represents $2 billion. That doesn't help us in any way. <laughs> Let me do a quick impression for you of an employee at ABC World News. Went to Columbia University, I got a master's degree in journalism, and now I'm just stacking pennies to make a pie chart? Are you kidding me? Sorry. Let's just get to the budget. $3.7 trillion. Now, the trick is to get it to vastly increase the deficit while still giving Americans the shoddy and indifferent government bureaucracy we've come to expect or at least be numb to. It's going to require some hard choices. Some of the savings will come through less waste and more efficiency. We'll save billions of dollars by getting rid of 14,000 office buildings, lots, and government-owned properties that we no longer need. From now on, when we buy office supplies, we will join up with Canada and Mexico to look for deals on Groupon. <laughs> Obama's budget would also cut such entitlement staples as a home heating oil subsidy for low-income Americans and Pell Grants. But that's why we have a two-party system, a marketplace of ideas. Maybe Republicans have a stronger plan for getting the deficit under control. Republicans want to take out Planned Parenthood. The elimination of AmeriCorps, for example. Republicans have a new target, PBS and National Public Radio. Well, uh, at least both sides agree our only way out of this mess is to cut programs that affect people who vote for Democrats. <laughs> so Obama has proposed a budgetary vision that over 10 years would save $1.1 trillion. Jeff Sessions, ranking Republican on the Senate Budget Committee, although perhaps best known for his 1996 collaboration with Bob Dylan. <laughs> I will bring back the picture. <laughs> that, that guy's got to be pleased with the cuts. When you hear uh, the $1.1 trillion in savings over 10 years, what's your take? Is that a good start, Senator? No, it's not. I expect, according to projections, 12 to $14 trillion in new debt added during that time. So $1 trillion reduction is insignificant and does not get us off the right course. Wow! He feels Obama's trillion dollars in savings over 10 years is insignificant. Senator Sessions, how do you feel about the Republican plan to save the identical amount of money over the exact same amount of time? $100 billion reduced this year as part of the baseline means that over 10 years you'd have a trillion dollar savings. This is the way you get the budget balanced. <laughs> Seriously, what are you going to do? You're going to go over to the Ford dealership and buy a Ford? It's a terrible idea. It's a piece of <laughs> What you need to do is buy one of my Fords. <laughs> I can't believe Dylan did an album with that guy. All right. You know what? It's clear that none of you guys, Republican or Democrat, are taking this seriously. I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to go Charles Grodin in Dave on your ass. And that is, my, that is my last reference for the night. All right. Here, how big is the budget? President Obama's budget proposal for the next fiscal year came in at more than $3.7 trillion. All right, all right, $3.7 trillion. <laughs> What's the deficit? The deficit, $1.1 trillion. 
Okay, there was one point. You know what, though? Hold on. Yeah, that's better. Sometimes they need to warm up. All right, so we got uh, $3.7 trillion up for grabs. How much? 88% of the budget is not affected by these cuts. They are only focusing on the cuts on 12% of the budget. Oh, so we can only cut from 12% of the budget. All right, well, 12% of 3.7 trillion is, let me know. All right, 440 billion. So here's what we need to do. We need to get uh, $1.1 trillion of spending cuts out of 440 billion. you enjoyed this show but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating but more importantly amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world so if that's true i ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist communist satanist or even the most reviled level of support george soros i produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot button issues we face maintaining a rock solid schedule so if that sounds worth supporting please consider signing up to donate as little as five a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. I'm Matt Rothschild, the editor of The Progressive Magazine, with my progressive point of view, which you can also grab off our website over at progressive.org. President Obama's budget gives away much of the store. Rather than fighting those who insist on balancing the budget first, rather than reviving the economy, he's submitted a budget that will actually slow the economy down, and even worse, hurt a lot of poor people. Inexcusably, he's proposing the elimination of vital home heating subsidies for 3.5 million low-income Americans who'll be left to shiver through next winter's cold. And inexcusably, he's cutting back on community block grants, which are crucial for helping out the most economically blighted areas of our country. But Obama's forsaken them now, and his throwaway line about how much he cares about such programs, even as he cuts them, provides no solace whatsoever. Meanwhile, the Pentagon keeps swallowing up the lion's share of discretionary spending, even as Obama lowballs the amount it'll cost to keep waging his losing war in Afghanistan. Obama has shown his hand. He's come in with a budget that freezes domestic spending for five years, just two months after giving the richest Americans an $858 billion tax break. He's hardly acting like a progressive Democrat. President Obama had lunch with Republican leaders and kindly asked one of them to pass the salt. 
The whole bunch would denounce the very idea of passing anything he wanted, accuse him of overreaching his constitutional authority, and declare the sharing of salt to be socialism. It's tough to contend with such knee-jerk political naysayers, but we need a president who will at least try. Unfortunately, though, Obama is giving in from the start on the solid principle that America can't simply cut its way to renewed economic greatness, especially with tens of millions of Americans either unemployed or barely employed. Grassroots revival requires bold, invigorating grassroots investment. The president's own budget proposal, however, slashes such obviously needed infrastructure programs as airport expansion, water treatment improvements, and environmental restoration. The no-can-do, visionless Republican leadership is willing to let the future of America and our workaday majority slide. Yet Obama seems unwilling to fight them. Of course, we should be dealing with an ever-rising budget deficit. But America's red ink flows from a debt amassed during the past decade by two unwarranted wars, absurd tax giveaways to the wealthiest elites, and an economic crash caused by Wall Street's insatiable greed. It's both economically and morally wrong for Washington now to put the budget burden on the already strained backs of working stiffs and the poor, who did not cause the deficit, much less profit from it. This is Jim Hightower saying. Meanwhile, guess whose spending level is not even being nicked by the GOP's screeching budget hawks? Their own. While they're gutting other agencies and programs, they're assessing only a tiny four percent cut on congressional spending. But even that's a deceit. For the House hiked its budget by 11 percent just two years ago, so they're still ahead of the game. If you go to the website, acompanyofone.org, you will find a page which I had printed, but apparently I forgot to grab out of the printer, which says this page is no longer available. Now, what was on that page before it vanished? Was a letter from a fellow by the name of Mark, who was, uh, I'm guessing, probably the guy who owned the site. And parts of his letter are reprinted over at uh, DemocraticUnderground.com, and that will link you back to ZeroHedge.com, where they have the original link to a company of one. His, what I believe is his website. Mark's website, and I just want to share with you a little bit of Mark's letter, if you'll indulge me, please. He said, "Hello, I am I am unemployed over two years now, a ninety nine er without any benefits for three months. I have a confession to make to all of you. I'm a criminal. I've obeyed the Ten Commandments and all laws except." 
I'm unemployed, and that's now a crime. I'm poor, and that's a crime. I'm worthless surplus population, and that's a crime. I'm a Main Street American citizen born and raised in the USA, and that's now a crime, and I am euthanizing myself as I write this note. So arrest my corpse. This is not a call for help. The deed is done. That's not what I wanted. It's not what I wanted. Death is my best available option. It's not just that my bank account is $4 that I've not eaten in a week, not because hunger pangs are agonizing, I'm a wimp, not because I live in physical and mental anguish, not because the landlady is banging on the door nonstop and I face eviction, not that Congress and the President have sent a strong message that they no longer help the unemployed. It's because I'm a law-abiding, though worthless, long-term employed older man who is surplus population. Had I used my college education to rip people off and steal from the elderly, poor, disabled, and Main Street Americans, I'd be wearing different shoes now. I'd be a petty king. Hard work, honesty, loving kindness, charity, and mercy, and becoming unemployed and destitute, unable to pay your bills, are all considered foolishness now and high crimes in America. Whereas stealing and lying and cheating and being greedy to excess and destroying the fabric of America is rewarded and protected, making such people petty kings and queens among us. We taxpayers have handed trillions of dollars to the same bank and insurance industries that started our economic disaster with its reckless gambling. We distributed tax cuts to businesses. For our dollars, we have been rewarded with starvation, homelessness, and a plague of fear. I am college-educated and work 35 years in management, receiving written references and praise from every boss for whom I worked. Yet after thousands of resumes, applications, emails, phone calls, and drop-ins, I failed to get a job even at McDonald's. I've discovered there's three strikes against me most 99ers will understand. Strike one, businesses are not hiring long-term unemployed. In fact, many job ads now say unemployed need not apply. Strike two, I am almost 60 years old. Strike three, for every job opening I've applied, there are over 300 applicants. I believe the Congress and President have no intention of really aiding the unemployed due to various political reasons. Had they really wanted to help us, they could have used unspent stimulus monies or cut foolish costs like the failed wars or foreign aid and farm subsidies. Just the unspent stimulus money alone could have taken care of all unemployed persons for five years or until the unemployment rate reached 7% if Congress and the President really wanted to help us. So here I am, long-term, unemployed, older man with chronic health problems, now totally broke, hungry, facing eviction. So I have the freedom to be homeless and destitute and pursue happiness, he puts that in quotes, in garbage cans and then die. Yay for America, huh? So the only option left for me is merciful self-euthanasia. It is with a heavy heart that I've set my death in motion, but what I am facing is not living. So off I go. I've made peace with God and placed my burden on Jesus, and he forgives me. This nation has become evil to the core, with cold-hearted politicians and tycoons squeezing what little Main Street Americans have left. It is not the America into which I was born. 
It is now the land of the tycoon haves, and the rest of us have-nots who march into helplessness and dis- hopelessness and despair. I can't help but juxtapose our plight to the tycoons. They steal from pension funds, banks, the people in government, and little Wall Street investors. Then rather than face punishment, they become the petty kings in this world. This new America is alien to me. It is an America of greed and corruption and avarice and mean-spirited selfishness and hatred of the common good. I am not welcome here anymore. I must go home. My home is somewhere else. Life is older, older than the trees, younger than the mountains, growing like a breeze. Country roads, take me home to the place. also get right to work to reduce the deficit which next year alone will save the taxpayers a hundred billion dollars cut government spending to pre-stimulus pre-bailout levels saving immediately a hundred billion dollars now that was during the elections then the republicans kept saying oh we're gonna cut a hundred billion dollars you just saw it for yourself it's gonna trust me trust me well i didn't i didn't trust them i didn't believe it for a second and the GOP then went on to make that promise the centerpiece of their pledge to America, saying they'd make the cuts if they won control of the House in the midterms. Well, they did win control of the House, and today they announced their actual plan. And it was immediately full of fail. Turns out they could only find $32 billion in cuts. Oh, well, you look at that. What a shame. They said, no, 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 we're actually going to cut $58 billion, but there's only eight months left in the year, so if you do the math, it's actually just 32 but we should get credit for more, and it's kind of almost close to 100 No, it's not. It's not close to 100 at all. Now look at this number, $400 billion. According to the Congressional Budget Office, that's roughly how much Republicans added to the deficit this year alone by insisting on the Bush tax cuts. So let me do some math for you, okay? $400 billion minus 32 billion what that equals 100 billion in cuts i I got news for you it doesn't i know republicans think math has a well-known liberal bias to borrow a phrase but the reality is house budget committee chairman paul ryan should do the real math and here's the real math on it 400 billion minus 32 billion means there are 368 billion dollars to make up to get to square one and then the Republicans would still have to find another hundred billion to make good on their real promise, the promise you just saw. But let's leave all that aside and just look at the four hundred billion dollars that they added to the deficit. In the end, by getting rid of the thirty-two billion, they took out a whopping eight percent from that four hundred billion. Wow! When Republicans say they care about balancing the budget, it is simply not true. It isn't within miles of true. They just put another $368 billion hole in the budget, and that was mainly to help the rich. 
think of us talking points and false choice after false choice and there's no prominent voices on the left five companies own everything you read hear and see misleading the people still calling it freedom of the press disaster of epic proportions they got us all in traitors in our midst screwed over when corporations bought in to congress Representatives of representing mostly lobbyists While the typical oblivious American is fine with all this Given the daily dose of celebrity gossip Government held hostage We kicked the worst out of office But at the core it remains rotten regardless Now how much can you rob the system Before it can be classified as like all a crime This is class warfare This is class warfare This is class warfare I've shared this with you before this was published in 2002, but it's a hundred-year-long study, so I think that it's, you know, we can, we can consider it still valid. Uh, you can find this over at BBC News by simply Googling BBC News, more, cons- more suicides under conservative rule. I will read you, this is not an op-ed piece, this is a news story. What they are reporting is research published in the Journal of Epidemiology and Community Health, And here's what the BBC says. The lead sentence. The suicide rate increases under conservative governments, research suggests. Scientists found the suicide rate in the country, they're talking about the UK and Australia, increased significantly when a conservative government was in power. They looked at suicide statistics from 1901 to 1998. They took into account periods of drought in World War II, but after adjusting for these factors, I'm quoting from the BBC, after adjusting for these factors, the figures clearly showed the highest rates of suicide occurred when both conservative and federal government, conservatives, excuse me, conservative state and federal governments were in power. Middle-aged and older people were most at risk when the conservatives ruled both state and federal governments. Men were 17% more likely to commit suicide than when labor was in power, labor being their version of Democrats, women were 40% more likely to kill themselves. In a series of accompanying editorials, they, they talk about some of the commentary on this article, but then they get back to the article, and the, and the BBC wraps it up by saying, overall, they say, the researchers, the figures suggest that 35,000 people would not have died had the conservatives never been in power. Equivalent to one suicide every day of the 20th century, or two for every day that the conservatives ruled. from Illinois. Um, I want to just say I've been listening to the show for about seven, eight months now. Uh, came a little late to the party, but I love it. Uh, I listen every week, look forward to it. Every episode, look forward to it. Um, I, I want to say that you know I'm 32 years old. Uh, while I'm working, I'm lucky enough to be able to listen to music, other podcasts. I've always listened to sports radio, things like that. And I've gradually switched to be obsessed with politics. Uh, and I've... Uh, come to be uh, a big fan of the Young Turks uh, through your podcast as well uh, and Jimmy Dore um, and uh, some of the other things I already listened to but I just want to say that I think young people 
moving forward are going to be the ones to save our country and our world from what is really sort of an irresponsible threat in, in terms of the right. Uh, I mean, these people don't care about the environment. They don't care about the gap between rich and poor and a lot of other stuff. And it's just about salting the earth and winning these pointless battles uh, for the enablement of the rich. And I think things like your show, um, even if it's just through entertainment and some enlightenment along the way, will gradually help more young people learn and get engaged, develop their sense of outrage when they're voters, when they're, hey, 10, 15 years elected officials. You know, I'm 32 years old. I've always been politically aware. But um, I think even the last few years of the Internet has helped me, you know, get to that point where I'm kind of ready to go, uh, ready to start giving money to candidates and uh, other things, just to make sure that the world my, my son inherits, he's a baby, is, is okay, you know. And so I think keep it entertaining. Uh, as much as it's hard to not... Uh, to always having dour shows because you could tackle difficult subject matter. Keep it entertaining because you need to keep these young people coming in. They need to be entertained, not just made to feel bad, but entertained, to laugh, and to be enlightened along the way. So I think you kind of have to gently drag them. And so I think you're doing a great job, and I think you can do more of it. So uh, I just want to thank you for the work you're doing, and you, what you're doing is important. Um, young people need to move on from the BS of of a more cynical older generation. And actually, some Pew Research Center stuff has indicated to me that young people, although they have short attention spans and things like that, are pretty with it and capable moving into the future. So thank you for that to whatever end you do, you do and uh, keep it up. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. And I actually have one more voicemail to play, but uh, I separated it because it's it's actually an old one that I'm going to replay because it's particularly relevant to today, and then I'm going to respond to it. So here it is. Hi, this is Nathan from New York City. I called in today, though, to bring out a conversation that we've had over email to the listeners. Unfortunately for the economic coverage of the show, many of the people you take clips from frequently bemoan the deficit and the debt, and worse, do not even provide any explanation for why these things are terrible. Why are budget deficits bad? What is so different between government securities that don't pay out interest, i.e. cash, and government securities that do? I would love to have this debate over Collins or on the Facebook page with other listeners. But mostly, I want people to question mainstream assumptions that even our favorite liberal commentators take as given. So there it was, and as as Nathan mentioned, he did go on to the Best of the Left Facebook page and uh, you know post something uh, you know on on this topic uh, there as well. And and when he did, he made a statement uh, vaguely along the lines of you know that that he didn't think that the deficit or the debt should be worried about at all. And, you know, I, I, I can only go based on what he actually wrote. I don't know if he meant at all, like, why worry whatsoever? You know, it shouldn't be given a single thought. Um, you know, probably he doesn't think that, but who knows? I, I won't uh, speculate. I will give my perspective on it, though. And, I you know, I will not pretend that I knew 
as much as I know now after having heard uh, the the really, really informative segment on today's show from The Breakdown that was uh, hosted by Chris Hayes. It's a show done uh, with The Nation magazine where they just asked the question, is the federal deficit uh, actually bad? Do we need to worry about it? What are the details? And so I, di- I didn't know as much as I know now after having heard that, just as as many of you hopefully were informed by it. But um, but I will say that, you know, my my instinct on this all along has has basically been along the lines of, you know, I recognize kind of the, the liberal uh, stance on this is in bad economic times, it's important that the government run a deficit to uh, help stimulate the economy. I totally get that. But on the other side, I think that to say deficits don't matter uh, is is completely flawed. And so it's simply, well, it is not a simplistic answer at all. If, if you're if you're giving a simplistic answer to that question, then you're wrong. <laughs> no matter which side you come down on, if you give a simplistic answer, then you're wrong. And so I think the you know the the conclusion that they came to in that uh, in, in that episode of the breakdown on today's show was basically it is a concern, but it's a secondary concern. There are other things that need to be worried about first. And you know, once things are kind of stabilized, then it would be good to uh, you know, get rid of the deficit and try to pay down the debt. So, and and that's, you know, he had all sorts of details for why that was true. My instinct was always to say that that was true. And, you know, my thoughts on that are based on, I mean, it, it just seems logical to me. Like, I get that sometimes you need to spend money and go into debt, but I also get that if you weren't in debt, you could do a lot of really great things with the extra money you would have. So, you know, our infrastructure could be better. We would have more flexibility with money we wanted to spend to build up alternative energy, you know, train systems across the country, rebuild and strengthen the existing infrastructure. And, uh, you know, and, that, and that's just concrete things. There's also the stuff like if the country and the states weren't running deficits, then that fact couldn't be used as an argument to cut services. And so it would completely undercut the arguments that Republicans make for why we need to break up unions, as they're doing in Wisconsin, because there would be no financial argument to back that up. So those are the two things that are the absolute baseline for my thinking on it is, you know, if we weren't running uh, deficits, then we would have more flexibility and be able to expand in great new progressive-minded ways to move the country forward. And at the same time, we would be able to uh, more easily fend off arguments to cut what we're already doing because we'd be in better financial shape and it would take away that argument from those who want to, you know, take away what we've already built up and, and you know, things that people depend on Maybe that's not really something that needed to be explained. Maybe the show explained it uh, well enough uh, for you guys. But I did want to kind of respond to Nathan's question since he called it in a long time ago and I didn't really address it at the time, but now it seems particularly relevant. So now before I go, I just want to thank volunteers first. I have a great slate of volunteers. Mike, Colette, Joe, Todd, Laura, and Emerson are all just kicking ass in uh, in all sorts of different ways that they're helping out the show. And it's it's crazy. It's, uh, so many of these people, like they, they do their work and, uh, and it's incredibly helpful. 
but for some of them, I, I almost never hear from them. And so they've almost like faded into the background. And now I'm in this dangerous position of having all the great stuff they do uh, be taken for granted. Where I'm just like, oh yeah, you know, like clips from the Young Turks and the Daily Show and Colbert. Like, yeah, they just show up on my computer in my Dropbox folder all by themselves. Like, yeah, that's normal, right? Like, I don't have to do any work to make that happen. And and it's so easy to forget that people are like actually doing that work and making that happen. Um, and so so if they ever disappear, I'm going to be in a lot of trouble. Um, so huge thanks to all those all those folks who are, uh, as I say kicking ass. Um, and then also members who, of course, uh, financially support the show. I definitely couldn't be doing what I'm doing without them. I want to thank uh, Clay C, who signed up for a leftist membership back on uh, April 29th and paid for a full year in advance. And Jeremy M, who signed up on March 6th, also as a leftist, uh, signed up as, as a monthly donor and has been sticking with the show ever since then. So huge thanks to Clay and Jeremy and all of the members and donors who make the show possible. As I say, I simply couldn't do it without you guys. So now remember, everyone can support the show just by uh, telling everyone you know about it. If you have a Twitter account, you can donate your Twitter account to Best of the Left. Details about that are linked, of course, uh, very prominently near the top of the page at bestoftheleft.com. To stay connected with the show between episodes, you can just join us simply by uh, following us on Twitter or liking the show on Facebook. Those are linked also on the website. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all of those details are always listed in the show notes on the blog. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 11 times a month. I think I might have been saying that wrong for a few episodes. Uh, coming to you 11 times a month, thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shiny sheet The only maker that you want to be A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor